Can you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 2? As I said at the outset, we're going to start a new series from Adam to Christ that looks at covenant theology exegetically, that we go through various texts that speak of the covenants of the Bible, of the look of the way God interacts with his people throughout redemptive history. Uh, uh, jokingly, uh, some subtitles to this ser- sermon series could be number one, why I'm not a dispensationalist. That's a good read. You know, dispensationalism, covenantalism typically are against one another, so why I'm not a dispensationalist. Two, why I'm not a paedo-baptist, because covenant theology very much informs how one views infant baptism. And three, why I'm an amillennialist, because when we come to covenant theology, covenant theology informs other theologies more than we think. So it's important for us to have a grasp of it. It's important for us to consider it. It's important for us to see how it flows in Scripture. And hopefully we unpack that going from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So tonight we're going to look at the covenant of works. Genesis chapter 2 verses 15 uh, and through 17. But we'll begin reading at chapter 2 verse 4 to set the context. And we'll read all the way to the end of the chapter. So Genesis 2 begin reading at verse 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the uh, the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and the Yonic stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hittikel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Out of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, Now this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Amen. Well, let's pray. Our great God, we are thankful again for the covenants we see in Scripture. We're thankful, O God, by way of covenant that you do condescend to us as creatures, that you do enter into relationship with us as creatures. And we pray, O God, we have a right understanding of what that means in history. We're thankful, O God, that there is a covenant of works, and we're even more thankful, O God, that there is a covenant of grace. We're thankful, O God, Christ completed the covenant of works that Adam failed to do, and we, your people, have that blessed reality of hope because we are part of that covenant of grace in in which there is eternal life. And we pray, O God, that we, your people, would recognize this, we, your people, would understand this, we, your people, would appreciate your your blessed plan of redemption, even that eternal plan before the foundation of the world to save wretched sinners like us. We know, God, that you're the one who is holy and wise. You're the one who is infinite in your wisdom and infinite in your knowledge and infinite in your goodness and infinite in your power. We know, God, that you are holy other and we are but your creature. And again, we ask, who is man that you are mindful of us? And we ask again, O God, that as we, your people, gather this evening, that we would consider the first Adam, that we might better understand the last Adam. We ask, O God, you'd help us, your weak and feeble people, to give you glory and praise and honor, even through the preaching. We pray, O God, that you would feed our souls, that you would nourish us as we study your word. We pray, O God, you'd be glorified in all things. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. 
Well, it's important for us in anything in life to see the forest through the trees. But sometimes as we see that forest through the trees, there are certain specific trees that we have to stop and consider and certain trees that give us guideposts along the way, gives us structure along the way. That's what covenant theology does for us when we consider the Bible, when we consider how it's put together. It gives us that structure of Scripture. And when we consider covenant theology in connection with Reformed theology, it's absolutely vital to Reformed theology. One theologian said, covenant theology is Reformed theology, or perhaps reverse, Reformed theology is covenant theology. So it's important that we have a vital understanding of this. Now, I understand sometimes it takes some time to understand all these things and how they go together. I get that. It took me a long time to do that as well. That's why we're slowing down. That's why we're spending times in each specific chapter dealing with each specific text, dealing with specifics of these covenants that we might have a better understanding of what it is. So covenant theology is very important when it comes to reformed theology, but covenant theology gives us the framework for how we think of salvation. Is salvation through the law or salvation through the gospel? Is salvation through works righteousness, law, or is salvation through alien righteousness, someone else's righteousness, or gospel? And really when we see covenant theology come about in the scriptures, it's how the Bible unfolds. It's how redemptive history unfolds as God further reveals who the Savior is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So covenant theology is wonderful, vital, and important for the people of God. And tonight we're going to look at that first covenant, the covenant of works that is made with Adam at creation in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2. And one problem that we see with this covenant of works there are twofold problems that we see in connection with it. One, theolo- uh, one uh, exegetical, one found in the text, and one theological that has implications for other doctrines as well. But the one exegetical, the one thing that we do see, it shows the, f- uh, the fact that uh, uh, what man had to keep, what Adam had to do in order for there to be eternal life. But if he failed, sin would come into the world. And what did Adam do? He failed. He violated that covenant and brought sin into this world. Adam functioned as that representative, and all those in him fell with him, all his posterity with him. He brought guilt, he brought sin, he brought the corruption, he brought death into this world. And every human is under the covenant of works when they're born. Every human has already failed in the covenant of works when they are born. They're in Adam. But theologically, as far as the problem, a misunderstanding of the covenant of works can lead to big-time problems when it comes to the doctrine of justification by faith. Because some people don't like the covenant of works, and what happens is they still recognize there's conditions, there's works going on in Genesis chapter 2, they just put it somewhere else. And we'll talk about that as we go through. It leads to problems with justification and sanctification. So it's absolutely vital that we understand these things, vital that we understand the, the place of the covenant of works in its connection with the covenant of grace. And again, we'll unpack all these as we're going through. It's going to take some time, but we, hopefully you can track a little bit. If you have questions at the end, please ask. But in Genesis 2, 15 and 17, we see God enters into the covenant of works with Adam. He promises life upon fulfillment, and he threatens death upon disobedience. It's a works covenant. Do this and live. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and life will be good. If you fail, you shall die. And really, understanding the covenant of works and the failure of it answers the question why we need a Savior, why we need a Christ, why we need a last Adam. And so we'll look at this covenant of works under three headings this evening. My meat and potatoes points, the parties of the covenant of works, verse 15. Then we'll see the stipulations of the covenant of works in verses 16 through 17a. Then lastly, we'll see the sanctions of the covenant of works in verse 17b. So the parties, who it's between, the stipulations, what is required, and the sanctions, the blessings for keeping it, and the curses for disobeying it. So the parties, the stipulations, and the sanctions. Let's first look at the parties of the covenant of works in verse 15. Notice in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in. Then verse 15, the Lord is going to command this same man. It's between God and and man, that they enter into this covenant. Now, perhaps it's important for us as we go through to define what covenant means and what it looks like. I think a good way to define covenant in the scriptures is the oath-bound commitment with divine sanctions. 
oath-bound commitment between the two parties, and it has certain divine sanctions that God imposes, blessings and curses. I think the reason I like this definition, because it encapsulates not just gracious covenants, but also works covenants. God imposes the stipulations, the requirements, depending on the certain covenant that he enters in with man, whether it's a promise given, a gift given, or whether it's something man must earn. It's oath-bound commitment with divine sanctions. And some elements that we see in covenants and perhaps, you know, we could, it's not the same. We could think of contracts we engage in between man to man. There's parties you engage in. You this person, this person. I usually think, I don't know why this always comes to my head. But when you're buying a phone, I go to Virgin, I want to buy a phone. Me and Virgin enter into a contract. Maybe because contracts are, everyone hates phone contracts, right? That's why I think of it so much. You enter into this contract with Virgin, the two parties, Virgin's going to give you a phone you get to use. You're going to pay them. If you don't pay them, well, then you might get your phone cut off. You know, there's parties, there's stipulations, and there's sanctions in those covenants. But between God and man, it's a little bit more binding, a little bit more, has a little bit more oomph to it than simply a contract. But we see these elements of the covenant. uh, We see certain elements of covenants in the scriptures. We see the parties. We see the, the stipulations. We see blessings and curses. And we see perhaps even a signature sometimes, even in the Old Testament. And what's interesting, if you've read Deuteronomy, hopefully you've read Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is actually structured like a covenant. The first five verses are the, pre, are the parties, God and Israel. Then chapters, uh, verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, all the way to chapter 5, it's a historical prologue or basically highlighting the history between the two parties. And then really the bulk of it is stipulations. What Israel must do to be in the land. What Israel must do in the land. And then at the end there are blessings and curses. Israel, if you do it, here's all the blessings you get. Israel, if you don't do it, here's all the curses you're going to get. And is the, 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 the covenant made with Moses and Israel is a works covenant. But we're going to get there when we get there. But for now, we're looking at the covenant of works, the, 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 the specific one made with Adam. Now, some people get a bee in their bonnet because the word covenant is not used in Genesis chapter 2. Now, perhaps, you know, jog your memory. Are there anything, is there any doctrine with respect to the Bible where that word is not found in Scripture? Trinity. The word Trinity is not found in Scripture. It's not wrong to use extra biblical language to describe biblical concepts and biblical ideas. So just because the word covenant is not there, it doesn't mean it's not a covenant. There are parties, God and Adam, there are stipulations, don't eat from the tree, and there are blessings and curses. If you do it, you're going to die. Like all the makings of a covenant are found there. But you can also go to Hosea chapter 6, 7, where God, I think explicitly through the prophet Hosea, remember Hosea is prophesying to the northern kingdom during the 8th century, same time as Amos, same time as Isaiah, same time as Micah. He's prophesying, to, remember there's a divided kingdom, he's prophesying to that wicked, awful, vile northern kingdom. And Hosea 6, 7, when he talks about the transgression of the covenant, he's comparing the Mosaic With the Adamic, he says there, verse 7, but like men, they transgressed the covenant. I think a better rendition, like Adam. It's not the word ish, which is the typical word, the general word used for, for man. Here it's the word Adam. Like man, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt treacherously with me. So even here, he's highlighting the fact that this covenant can be broken. The covenant of works and the Mosaic covenant can be broken. But he's comparing the Mosaic covenant with Israel with or likening it to the covenant that was transgressed with Adam. So very clearly there, the covenant made with Adam, they transgressed, which Adam transgresses as well. So the word covenant, just because it's not there, doesn't mean it's not a covenant. And so... Back to verse 15, we see in chapter Genesis 2, we see God, the good creator, entering into a covenant with his good creation. Now, backing up in Genesis, backing up with what's already gone on, God in his mercy has created the heavens and the earth in the space of six literal days out of nothing. And it's important to highlight that, that it was out of nothing. Sometimes we like to put creation in the realm of apologetics. We always want to throw down against evolution, not saying you can't do that. But brethren, creation 
helps us not understand, but maybe define God in a better way. Helps us to realize who God is and what we are. God did not need you and I, brethren. God does not need anything from us. He should get worship. He should get honor simply because he's God. But he did not have to create. He had perfect life in himself. He doesn't need us, brethren. So one thing creation ex nihilo highlights is the fact that God is the all-sufficient good. God is the self-sufficient good. God does not need you and I, but God in his goodness creates the world. And he does so in the space of six days. We see that in Genesis 1. And then in Genesis 2, we have a honed-in picture of what happened on the sixth day. Not two separate creation accounts. Same creation account, just a zoned-in picture of what's gone on. And so God in his goodness, as we see a further picture, he's created man, breathed life into him, verse 7. And then we see the God's good garden, his garden place. God planted a beautiful garden east of Eden, many delicious things to eat. The tree of life was there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's, there's river that flows, there's, there's lushness that comes with that. So God has made something good for man. And then he takes man, the one who he's created, and he puts him in that garden. Then the Lord God took the man, or took Adam, and put him in the garden of Eden. See, at creation, it was paradise. And God dwelt with man in paradise. And what made paradise paradise was the fact that God dwelt with man. I know two years ago we looked at a series on the dwelling of God. And in that series we highlighted that the first temple in scripture is not with the, with, with the old covenant people of Israel. The first temple in scripture is here in Genesis chapter 2. Adam is a priest king. Adam is the one who is called to till and work the ground. Adam is the one who tills that first garden temple. And in fact, what's interesting is when you read, if you're doing the McShane calendar, you would have done 1 Kings 6 a couple days ago. Perhaps if you're paying paying attention and you're reading what was said as they were describing how they were building that temple, they talked about the, 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 the palm trees that they made out of wood and the open flowers they made out of wood, alluding back to this very idea, alluding back to that temple place where God dwelt amongst his people. So the first temple, the first place is in in Genesis chapter 2. And that's what temple signifies. That's what tabernacle signifies. God dwelling amongst his people. Genesis 40, you know, the, 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 uh, or sorry, Exodus 40. The pinnacle of Exodus is not the Exodus. The pinnacle of Exodus is God dwelling in the cloud in Exodus chapter 40. It's God's, it's God's tabernacle, God's house. I know we tune out when we get to Genesis or Exodus 26 through 40. We're like, I'm going to just gloss over this as fast as possible. Brethren, we should realize that what's going on here is describing God's house. And then where God dwells with his people. Then Leviticus describes how we approach that God in his house. Really, it's all about worshiping our God. And before sin enters in the world, Adam has unfettered, unbroken relationship dwelling with God at this time. And even too, the temple, Adam, or even this garden temple points ahead to the new heavens and new earth. But who gives light? Who is the one that, that covers the new heavens and new earth as the temple? Jesus is called the temple in John chapter 2, isn't he? It's in his body that we have dwelling. It's because of him, because of who he is. It's in him that we have dwelling with God. So temple is a very important theme throughout the scriptures, especially when we consider Genesis all the way to Revelation as well. So God creates man. He creates man, puts him in this garden temple. He creates man in his image, Genesis 1.26. He makes him a living being. He gives him a a mandate to be fruitful, multiply, to have dominion, to spread God's glory throughout the world as a kingdom, as a king over creation, to be a vice regent with God. And I should highlight too, God did make man upright. God made Adam able to sin and able not to sin. God made man upright according to Ecclesiastes 7, but he sought out his own devices. When we consider what that image of God means, it refers to the fact that man, Adam, was created in true knowledge, righteousness, holiness. But not just that, he's able to make decisions, but not just that, there is a royal rule connected with it as well. 
God tells Adam to name the beasts, doesn't he? That's an authoritative type task that God gives to, Matt, gives to Adam. And as well, when we read Psalm 8 at the outset, when God is mindful of man in creation, that he gave him to have dominion over the beasts of the field and the oxen, the, sea, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, God gives Adam, God gives man, is mindful of him, even at creation, to give him this task to have dominion throughout all the earth. And one of the things that Adam has to do to spread that glory throughout all the earth is to work until the garden. Notice he sets Adam in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And perhaps as I was reading, did you notice the language that's used? Garden eastward in Eden. There is Eden and then there's the garden. And the gar- garden, Eden are not nece- garden and Eden are not necessarily synonymous but the garden is a further inner sanctuary in Eden. It's almost like it is the Holy of Holies where Adam goes and tills the place and works in it. And what's fascinating to the language here of to till, to tend and to keep it is the same language used of the Levites in Numbers 3. It's the same language used of the Levites in 1 Chronicles 23, talking about these ones who serve and work and tend and keep the temple. So Adam is that first priest in that first temple. He acts as that federal head. When I say federal head, I mean the one who's the representative for all mankind. He stands in the stead of all mankind. Even as God enters into this covenant with Adam, it's not just with Adam, but all his posterity after him. So he was meant to come into this place to tend and to keep it in paradise. Notice something that's interesting about paradise that's different from our idea of paradise It's not idleness, is it? I think sometimes we think of paradise and we need a vacation, we need rest, we need to go somewhere tropical and just sit pina coladas all day. That's what we think rest is. That's not what it is here, is it? It's honoring God. It's glorying in God. It's serving God. You see, idleness is a bad, bad thing. Not saying you can't do it for a week, need a vacation. I'm not against going and sipping pina coladas, by the way. That's perfectly fine. But idleness is a very bad thing. Man was meant to work. Man was meant to, glor- was meant to use his hands, work hard. You should work so hard that you don't even have time to sin. That's what we should be doing. It's good for man to work. And you know what? It's good for ladies not to be idle as well. Just Idleness is just bad in general. Find something to do in life. It's good for us to do it. So notice paradise is not idleness. But it's working, it's a priestly working for Adam in this case to tend, to keep it, and to till it. So God in his goodness, he creates man, creates Adam. God in his goodness makes, gives man authority. God gives Adam this, this, he makes him a vice regent with God to work and till and to spread God's glory throughout the world. One thing I think we see here with the, the parties of the covenant is I think we see God's goodness in creation. I think two reasons that we can see God's goodness, or two reasons I'm highlighting this, the first reason for us to see God's goodness in creation is to highlight what God does even in a temporal sense. God, even in a temporal sense, as I said, gives man good things. He could have just created man and said, Worship me, you little pig. Are you a little small worm? That's all he could have said. He didn't have to even hold out life. He didn't even have to hold out eternity. He didn't even have to give, you know, Adam the lushness of the garden. But God is good and merc- God is good and kind in creation to give good things. It shows the authority given and the blessing that God does give. Again, Psalm number eight. But I think as well. With the reason it's important to highlight God's goodness in creation, we still see God's goodness in creation. Yes, man has fallen. Yes, the image is distorted, not lost. The image has been distorted. It's still there, but it's very much fallen and tainted and wrong and, and fa- fallen. But, but God, is still, uh, God is still patient or God is still long-suffering. And we're going to see that in a couple, time, a couple Lord's Suppers from now, looking at the Noahic Covenant. We'll get there. But we see God even is still good in creation. He's going to judge creation. It shall come to pass. We'll deal with that with the Noahic covenant. 
But one thing, the second reason it's important to highlight God's goodness in creation is because it once again highlights the egregious nature of sin. God gave Adam good things. And Adam decides to take the one thing he wasn't supposed to do. Take the one thing he wasn't supposed to eat. It shows how wretched and awful we really are, actually, doesn't it? Even in God's goodness towards us in temporal things, it shows us how wicked and vile we are and why we need a Savior, why we need the last Adam, why we need a Christ. It shows the egregious nature of sin in this world. God made man upright. God made man good. He gave him authority. He gave him good things. He held out eternal life. Adam fails in that. So that's the parties of the covenant. Let's then look secondly at the stipulations of the covenant of works in verses 16 through 17. A. Notice verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man. Again, God and man, but notice the one who sets the terms. You see, when it's a relationship between man and man, you can negotiate a little bit, right? And we see, you know, covenants happen between men in the Bible. Abraham and Abimelech enter into covenant with one another. But what's different about God entering into covenant with man is the fact that it's superior entering into a covenant with an inferior. And God is the one who determines what the covenant is. As he engages in this covenant of works, another term for the covenant of works, another way to describe it is the covenant of creation, that is, when it was made. Another term we use for it is the covenant of nature given to man before the fall. Another term we use is the covenant of life, the life that was held out, the goal, but Adam failed in that. So all those encompass the covenant of works. Covenant of works, creation, nature, and life. And God at creation, as he enters into this covenant, determines what it is. He determines whether he's going to give man something, whether he's going to require man something. He determines whether it's going to be a promise, that is, whether it's something that man just receives, or whether it's something man must earn, whether it's a covenant of grace or a covenant of works. And God, as the creator, has the right over his creature to determine what that is. In fact, I love the language of our... Oh, I almost spilt the water there. Anyway, uh, God in his God, or sorry, the God. The, uh, the, I love the way the, conf- the writers of the confession describe covenants. They say in paragraph one of chapter seven, the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do o- obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. That's how God speaks to creatures. That's how God interacts with his creation. It is by way of covenant. It's God speaking baby talk to us. Because God is so great. God is so big, is one of the songs we listen to with little Lucy. God is so big, so strong and so mighty, all those things. God is wholly other than you and I. He is infinite. I don't even know what that means. He's eternal. Again, I don't even know what that means. But it highlights the, the vastness, the, majest, the, the majestic nature, the majesty of the Lord God Most High. And He is the Creator. And we are His creature. And even in creation, the way He, he still condescends to creatures, even in creation. And even Again, in redemption as well, he condescends by way of covenant. We're going, again, to get there as we move on through. But he stoops to us. He speaks with us in baby talk. So he comes, and the Lord is the one who commands the man, or commands Adam, saying. And he gives a positive exhortation. The Ten Commandments aren't just things you're not supposed to do. They're also things that you should do as well. Don't kill people. But also work, also make sure, you know, you're, you're not killing yourself as well. Make sure, you know, you know, exercise, those types of things. That's all part of the sixth commandment. Eighth commandment, don't steal. What's the positive side of things? Work hard. There's a, there's a positive aspect and a negative aspect with respect to these commands. And so God says, Adam, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Anyone. After this description of the lushness, after this description of the the fruitfulness that we see in the garden, you can have anything you want, Adam. Anything at all of this, you may surely 
eat. And again, it makes the subsequent sin so heinous. Adam was created upright, but he's going to seek out his own devices. When we talk about what, the way in which Adam was created, we call it the state of innocency. That is, before the fall happened. Adam was able to sin and able not to sin. This helps us understand free will. You see, Adam was really the only one who could choose between something spiritually good and something spiritually evil. Adam could do good, but had the the possibility to fall to sin by eating of one tree. Brethren, he was able to sin and able not to sin. Sin comes into the world. We're not able not to sin. That's the state of sin. And when we think of free will, brethren, we still have the right to choose, but but, but we only choose according to our nature. And what is our nature? Sinful. We only choose wicked, not so spiritually good things. We are in a state of sin. But then when God saves his people, he translates them to the state of grace. Before we die, we're in the state of grace. You're a believer, you're in the state of grace. And by God's grace, not to earn our way, we can do things that are spiritually good and spiritually wicked. By God's grace, sancti- or by God's grace, we can do things spiritually good in our sanctification. We're, gonna, we're not able to sin, and we're able. We're sorry, we're able to sin and not able to sin. And one day we'll be glorified, and that's what we long for when we're not able to sin. That's what we long for. But right now, Adam, according to his, according, he was created upright. He was created in a state of innocency, but he sought out his own devices. Now, God works through means. God is the one who ordains all things, not even by bare permission. But that does not make God the author of sin. See, that's kind of the hard part, isn't it, with God's, God's sovereignty and human responsibility? But again, I think Acts 2 highlights this for us. When he said, God appointed that the Son of Man should die... You killed him, you Israelites. You killed him, you Jews. Even though God planned it, it was because of your hatred. It was because of your vileness. It was because of your wickedness. It because you wanted to kill the Lord of glory. So you can't say, well, God planned that I... No, no, you can't say that. Adam can't say, God, you, you made me... No, we freely do it. But God works through those means. So Reformed folk aren't against free will. We just have to have a proper place of free will. No one is knocking on heaven's door. No unbeliever is desiring God. The only way someone desires God is because God works and saves them. And then God, and then they, God gives them the gift of faith. They believe. But it's only because of God's grace and mercy. So Adam was created upright. God gave him good things. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But then verse 17a We see the prohibition, what Adam was not supposed to do. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. That's it. There's one tree. Just can't eat from that one tree, Adam, and everything will be fine and dandy and everything will be just great. Anything else you want. But of course, Adam likes that tree or his wife starts it. Still Adam's fault, but his wife starts it with the whole thing that goes on in Genesis chapter 3. But he comes, even with this tree of knowledge of good and evil, what he violates is not just this law, but he violates the entire Ten Commandments. And it's important for us to distinguish between the moral law, that is the Ten Commandments summarized, or the the moral law is summarized in the Decalogue we see in Exodus chapter 20, But we know that the law of God is written on the heart of mankind, Romans chapter 2. Even before Sinai comes, killing is still bad, right? And adultery is still bad. That's all still bad. Just because it wasn't explicitly mentioned at creation, it's all still bad because it was written on the heart of mankind. And so when we see this law given to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's what we call a positive law, not Positive versus negative. When I say positive law, what I mean is it's binding for a time. Moral law is binding for all time. That is, you can eat fruit, and that's perfectly legitimate. And we see other positive laws that are actually tied to covenants in Scripture. The judicial 
laws of the Old Testament. See, covenant theology helps us think through these things, doesn't it? Helps us think through the law and what it means and what it signifies and what still binds. The reason we don't have to keep some of those judicial laws with Old Covenant Israel or the ceremonial laws with Old Covenant Israel is because, A, they were vomited out of the land and they're no longer a body politic. And perhaps B, and more importantly, Jesus fulfills the ceremonial laws. We don't have to keep them. We're not under the old covenant. We're under the new covenant. And the positive laws of the new covenant, ordinances of the new covenant, baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's part of the new covenant. It's connected with the new covenant. It's an ordinance given that we, yeah, he does say, Peter, repent and be Baptized. So positive law is binding for a time, moral law binding for all time. And when Adam eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as he violates that positive law, he's violating the entire moral law. All ten commandments. James says in James chapter 2, if you violate one of it, one law, one iota, you violate the whole thing. I think John in 1 John 3, 4 gives us a very succinct definition of what sin is. Ready? Sin is lawlessness. That's what sin is. And when does sin enter the world? According to Romans 5, through the one man. Sin is violating God's law, not doing what God's law says. And Adam violates all of it. And we went with it by, not by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And one thing, just as an aside... A further temple connection we could see with the two trees, tree of life, knowledge of good and evil. Perhaps the tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil is like the law that is in the ark, that conditional aspect. Again, the Mosaic covenant is a conditional covenant for Israel in the land, and it is that tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you violate it or like it, if you violate it, you shall be kicked out of the land. And the tree of life points to eschatological life. In fact, what do you read in the new heavens and new earth in Revelation chapter 22? The tree of life is there. So it's very, they're all connected with one another. Genesis and Revelation with respect to the old creation and the new creation. With respect to the old Adam and the last Adam. But these are the stipulations. Here's what Adam, you must do. Do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And you see the conditional nature of it, right? He's not saying, here you go, Adam. He's saying, Adam, you must do this. And then you'll receive the blessing. You must not eat from the tree. Then you'll receive life. It is a covenant of works, not grace given. And it's important for us to see this because we see what God required of man. What God required of Adam. Adam was supposed to fill the law, but he failed in that. And as he fails in that, he brings sin and death and judgment for all who die in Adam. And one thing it's important to highlight with this, not just the fact that sin comes into the world. Yes, it does. It's one of the reasons we're bo- we are born corrupt. See, Adam brought guilt and corruption into the world. The legal aspect and the personal aspect. See, what happens is with respect to imputation, imputation is very important for the doctrine of justification. Imputation just means transfer. That is, Adam's sin was transferred to us. And then, when Christ dies on the cross, his people's sin are transferred to him. And then, in justification, or the way we receive justification through faith, is because Christ's righteousness is imputed or transferred to us. So we'll get to that justification connection further, but it's so vital and so important. But when man is born, anyone who is born in the womb, or hopefully, they're not born in the womb, right? They, they, are, they grow in the womb and they come out of the womb. When they come out of the womb, they are little sinners. As much as you might think they're little angels and they sleep so nice, sometimes they scream. I love my little Lucy, but she screamed that first night. I, I'm not going to lie, the next day I, didn't, I had no sleep and Jessica and I had a, just a hug and I wept. I'm like, is this what we're getting into with parents? Because this is what life is, isn't it? This is what happens. And they do little terrible things. Love her dearly. She's, you know, sweet little sweetheart. But she's a little sinner. Original sin. When I say original sin, I'm not referring to the first sin, but someone who's born corrupt. So all those things are in play. Sin, guilt, corruption. But one thing it's important to highlight with this covenant One thing it's important to highlight for any person that is born after Adam in sin, which is everybody, 
is the fact they're already born, born into failure. And what I mean by that is Adam failed. Only Adam could have earned eternal life, brethren. Only Adam was born in the state of innocency. Could do good, could do evil. Thankfully, the Lord Christ comes, but before the Lord Christ comes and without the Lord Jesus Christ, man is already born into failure. It's sad, isn't it? Every other religion is trying to earn the covenant of works and trying to keep it. It doesn't even, not not that they're going to be saved by doing it or not that they worship the right God through doing it, but nonetheless, they're trying to earn their way. There's a recognition that there is something that must be done, but brethren, we cannot do it because the verdict has already been rendered in the Lord Jesus, or sorry, in Adam. And yes, the verdict has been rendered in the Lord Jesus Christ in a positive, blessed, good way. But the verdict has been rendered at, crea- at the fall when Adam sins. He, he breaks the covenant and that covenant cannot be kept. Man cannot earn his salvation. Only Adam could have. And sometimes, too, brethren, it's not just, not just other religions but sometimes Christians, because sometimes you don't know where to put works. I'll talk about that more in a sec as well. But sometimes what happens is Christians, unfortunately, maybe unknowingly, put us back under the covenant of works by saying we contribute something to our salvation. We're already born into failure. That's why we need a Savior. So that's the stipulations of the covenant of works. Let's then look Thirdly and finally, the sanctions of the covenant of works in verse 17b. There is an explicit curse mentioned here. Verse 17b. But uh, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. As soon as that happens, Adam, you're going to bring death into this world. Spoiler alert, he fails and he brings death into this world. And he brings sin into this world. Adam was the one who brought these things in. In fact... Paul says this in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, talking actually about imputation and justification. In fact, Romans 3 could be all about justification. Romans 4 is all about justification by faith. And then Romans 5 is all about what that means, imputation of righteousness transferred to us, to his people, through faith because of Jesus Christ. So Adam brings sin into this world. It's imputed legally. Corruption comes when we are born because of him. His disobedience brings about death. It brings about spiritual inner corruption, Ephesians 2. It brings about bodily death, Genesis chapter 3. And it brings about eschatological death, Romans 6. That has not been imposed in its fullness just yet. And that's why the Noahic covenant is very important for understanding God's delayed judgment in this world. But we're born into sin. There's the reality of bodily death and bodily decay. But there is the reality or possibility if you die in Adam, not in Christ, you die the eschatological death. Death is a reality and serious thing. And if you have not believed on Christ, you are in Adam. And even you might be saying, well, you know, Adam was the one who failed. Why do I have to follow in his? No, you would have done the same thing. You have just as much, you have, you, have, you have the same corruption, same sinfulness, same wretchedness. You would have done the same thing. So don't blame Adam. Own your own sin. Confess it to Christ and believe on him. So there's a curse. Death. That's what we mean by sanctions, blessings and curses. But there's also the implicit blessing that is found here. What's the opposite of dying? If you keep it, you shall live. There is this probationary period. Adam was supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill God's glory throughout the earth. If Adam had filled God's glory throughout the earth without eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, guess what? He would have earned eternal life. There would be eschatological life that is given. There would be this unfettered, unbroken, or un. Or, or, or no, no possibility of, of, of this connection with God, this dwelling with God being broken. It was supposed to be complete dominion. But again, he fails in that, doesn't he? And what's interesting, it's important for us to highlight, before there was a need for salvation, there was a goal, wasn't there? There was this unbroken dwelling with the Lord God Most High. 
Or perhaps we could say it another way. Eschatology precedes soteriology. That is, the the goal, which is what last times is, brethren, it's driving us to a certain goal. Before we even needed salvation, there was already a goal. There was already the promise of dwelling with God forever and ever. Or another way to say it is, last things first. I think we need to get this idea out of our heads. The last days are something future for us, brethren. And I think we need to go back and read the Old Testament and what they thought about the last days and see how in the New Testament, how they recognize those last days are being fulfilled through the, the power of Christ, the pouring out at Pentecost. John even says in 1 John 2, these are the last days. And in my opinion, the last days are just the time between Christ's first and second coming. Christ is ushered in and brought in the new heaven, or inaugurated the new heavens and new earth with his resurrection and pouring out at Pentecost. In fact, Peter says, quoting Joel 2, that these are the last days. So yes, brethren, we live in the last days, but so did John, and so will anybody who comes after us. They will be living in the last days before Christ comes back. And really, last days is just the kingdom of God being brought in that we might have dwelling with God. And that was the promise already back in Genesis chapter 2. Last things first. Dr. Van Drunen, it's, it's, uh, Dr. Van Drunen says, Soteriology, or salvation, is God's way of accomplishing eschatology. So even though Adam fails, God still uses soteriology to bring about that dwelling with God him but before we needed salvation there was already a goal on the day that you eat of it you shall surely die but if you keep it you shall surely live and all your posterity after you but again adam fails he eats of the tree in genesis chapter 3 sin enters in and we see a reversal of authority don't we adam over his wife over the creation, what happens? Serpent, woman, then man. Reversal of that authority that he was supposed to engage in. Yes, you know, Eve you know, said, Adam, try some. But Adam, as the head, should have said, no, Eve, don't listen to that stupid snake. He should have broken its neck is what he should have done with that snake instead of listening, instead of listening to his wife. And then he blames his wife, right? Isn't that what we always do all the time? It, it wasn't me. It was this other person. That's, we always like to shift the blame, and that's an age-old problem as well. It happened at the fall. Thank you so much, Adam. Or maybe I shouldn't blame Adam. I should be thanking myself for that very idea because I do it too. Don't we blame other people than ourselves? It wasn't me. Even, even criminals do that. It was because of my upbringing. That's why I, you know, shot that guy in the head. You know, the bullet just flew out. I, I don't know what happened with that. Seriously, criminals do try to argue against, they argue that they're the victim in the whole thing. You're the one that pulled the trigger. I'm sorry. Own your sin. Brethren, we as God's people ought to take up our crosses deny ourselves, and sometimes own our sin as well. But Adam doesn't do that at this point. You and I don't do it a lot. That's why we need a Savior. That's why Genesis 3.15 is so vital and so important. Genesis 3.15 is the first proclamation of the gospel. Right after the fall, Right after Adam sins and grumbles and whines and complains and God finds them. Verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is the first proclamation of the gospel. And we're going to look at this next time when we come to our Lord's Supper meditation. We look at Genesis 3.15. And, and really, this is the proclamation of that covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is the new covenant. The covenant of grace is eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And each subsequent covenant reveals something about this. It's not the same as the covenant of grace, but it reveals something about the covenant of grace before it finds fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one of my favorite disciplines, if I'm going to be honest. The way the Bible unfolds, that's one of my favorite things. And the way it's like reveals and 
alludes to one another and alludes back to things that have happened. That's like the best thing in this. No, Christ is the best thing in the scripture. That's the second best thing in the scriptures. The way it unfolds and, and passes through and God reveals something more about, about what this seed of the woman will look like. And really throughout the entire Old Testament, that's what you're asking. Is this the seed of the woman? Is this the one? Then he narrows it further. He's like, is this then? Is this the seed of the Abraham? Is this the one promised? Is this the one? Then he narrows it further. Is this David? Is this the one? Is this the king that we've been waiting for? Some kings look like it's going to work out and then it fails miserably. They're all looking for this one, the seed of the woman. You see, God, even at the fall, is mindful of our plight. And he's mindful of us, not just in creation, but in redemption as well. One of the things I love about Psalm 8 is it's a two Adams text in the Old Testament. It alludes back to what Ad or God's goodness in creation, but also points ahead to God's goodness in redemption. And in fact, Hebrews chapter 2 quotes this. The Savior who would come and the fact that God would, can, who would, uh, God would be mindful of man. And this one who is mighty comes, this supreme one who comes, that he might bring many sons to glory. So it's important for us to know the first Adam that we might better understand the last Adam. And you see two places that are explicit. Yes, Psalm 8 uh, is not explicit but implicit. But there's two explicit places in the New Testament that speak about Christ and Adam. One is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Talking about resurrection. Talking about the importance of the fact that Christ is raised from the dead. This last Adam. There's the first Adam and then there is the last Adam. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 22. For as in Adam all die, even so Christ shall be made alive. And he goes on to talk about Christ's dominion, Christ's power, Christ is king. Psalm 110. Death, destruction, good stuff. He'll make all his enemies his footstool. But then perhaps the more explicit and more fuller explanation is in Romans 5. Romans 5 verse 12, death and Adam, life in Christ. And he very explicitly says in verse 14, nevertheless death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even before there was an explicit law, death reigned. Sin was there. Sin was present. Even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. We talk about this often, typology. There are many different people, different events, different institutions in the Old Covenant that point ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Adam is clearly, explicitly called that type. They're examples. They're not the same. They're not Christ, but they're pointing ahead to them. David is a type. The judges, even Samson, they're types as well. Even those... Terrible guys. They're still, they're still types of the Lord Jesus. Uh, to, you know, the, 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 the feasts are types. They're looking ahead. They're types of this one, the Lord Jesus. But Adam is a type of Christ. Adam is called this. He brings about righteousness. He brings about eternal life. He brings about, in you know, chapter uh, 5, verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Just as Adam is a federal head for all his posterity, so too is Christ the federal head for all his posterity. Christ as the representative for his people goes to the cross on our behalf. On behalf of the elect, on behalf of the ones promised to him of old. And when I say of old, I mean eternity. Again, I don't get that. But it's God's promise even in that Covenant of redemption, we're going to talk about that. We're going to come back around after we're done and talk about the covenant made in eternity. So stay tuned. I don't know how long it's going to take to get there, but we're going to get there. And that covenant of redemption, brethren, spoiler, or maybe I'll give you a sneak peek. It is a covenant between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, Zechariah 6, Psalm 110, Psalm 2, all highlight this very idea. And what it is, the father plans, the son accomplishes or plans to accomplish, and the spirit applies those things, even before the foundation of the world. But what's beautiful is that the covenant of redemption, brethren, is a covenant of works. And Christ promises 
to come down before the foundation of the world, even in the promise that Adam would, even with the reality and the, the decree that Adam would fall, Adam points ahead to this one who would come and do what the first Adam could not do. See, there is a place for works, but the place for works is in Jesus Christ. And Christ is the one who works for his people. Christ is the one who did what Adam could not do. He keeps the covenant of redemption because Adam failed in the covenant of works. And it's so important for our understanding of justification. We need Christ's perfect, righteous law keeping. We need Christ to live in this way. It's what we call his active obedience. Do you see how important, hopefully you see how important, the covenant of works is for Christ and his perfect law keeping. Hopefully you see that we need this. If there's a place for works here, there is a place for Christ earning and being perfect and keeping the law because Christ is that last Adam. And it's important for us because we receive the covenant of grace. Christ offers us the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is between God and sinners, God and his elect, that he gives us eternal life through faith. And the reason we have that promise and that blessing it's of grace is because of the life of another. Not our own life, not our own perfect keeping because we fail, we're born into failure, but because Christ as the federal head and as the mediator of a new covenant. Brethren, we as Reformed Baptists, this differs from our paedo-Baptist brothers and sisters. We believe the covenant of grace is the new covenant. All the Old Testament covenants point ahead to that very uh, point ahead to that very coming new covenant, covenant of grace. And in Roman or Hebrews 8, Christ is the surety of a better covenant, referring back to the Mosaic covenant, one that cannot be broken. Even in Jeremiah 31, the promise of the new covenant, it is not like the one of old. It cannot be broken. And it's absolutely vital to understand the covenant of works in connection with the covenant of grace, especially as it pertains to justification. The reason being, as I said at the outset, some deny the covenant of works. Because the word covenant is not there. They only want grace to be everywhere all the time. I'm not denying God isn't kind and good to creation, but before the fall, there is no need for saving grace. And that's important. You see, what happens is, track with me here. I know you're tired, but I need you to track with me right now with what I'm about to say, okay? The reason that we need to have a place for works and the reason that we need to have it in connection with the covenant of grace is because if you put grace everywhere, you recognize that there are conditions. You recognize Adam had to do something. You recognize that in the Mosaic Covenant, they had to do something. They recognize there are works. But guess where they put the works? They make it about us. And they make it about a final justification. That you and I have to contribute to that final justification. It mixes justification and sanctification together and violates and denigrates Christ's perfect, glorious righteousness. Do you see why it's so important? We understand that there is a covenant of works and understand the promise of the covenant of grace in 315 and Christ comes because Christ earns that way. And this problem rears its ugly head all the time. The place of works. Not as though there's a core or a connection or a causation between all these traditions, but it happens all the time. People speak of justification, saved by faith. And they're like, oh, but people are living like the devil. What do we do now? Oh, you got to earn your way. And they add works to it. Rather than understanding the categories of justification and sanctification. Justification is Christ's work for us because of his alien righteousness And sanctification is Christ's work in us. And in fact, justification deals with the guilt of sin. Sanctification deals with the corruption of sin. And they're both the double benefits that Christ gives. And it's Christ who works. But our right standing before God is only because of Jesus Christ. And we're not going to add anything to it. Or perhaps another way to explain it. You're in by faith. Or you stay in and you stay in by works. You can lose your way. That's reprehensible, brethren. Christ has won the battle 
And if you've believed on him and believed on his perfect righteousness, you shall not fall away. Those who fall away prove that they were never believers in the first place. All those who are Christ's, whom Christ dies for, and who's praying for now, shall be saved. Christ shall not fail. Again, this emerges in so many ways. The Judaizers and Galatians, Roman Catholicism, Richard Baxter, New Perspective on Paul with, 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 with N.T. Wright. Arminianism has this as well. Something called the Federal Vision. They took this idea of no covenant of works, denying it to its logical conclusion. Others as well. When they speak of a final justification, when you hear that, Tune it out. Or maybe, well, maybe listen in to see what they're saying, but then reject it because it's absolutely wrong. Nothing contributes to our final, final justification because there is no final justification. Brethren, we're already justified now in Christ. When we get to that judgment, it's just going to be declared openly. Not guilty. Why? Because of Christ's righteousness. It's not 90% Christ and 10% me or 50% me and 50%. It's all of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's really what the gospel is. Christ living the life Adam didn't live. Christ dying for his people who sinned in Adam. And Christ being raised, winning eschatological life that Adam could not win. Christ earning and winning the new creation. Christ giving us a covenant that shall not break. I love Barcelos's definition or his title to his book on creation. Better than the beginning, brethren. Yeah, I don't want to go back to the beginning. You want to know why? Adam could have failed. And Adam did fail. But into the new covenant, the last Adam, Christ shall not fail. And that covenant of grace shall not be broken. And he's one eschatological life for his people, end time life, eternal life for his people. And we know that that new creation shall not be broken and taken away. And really Christ is filling the whole earth with his glory, isn't he? And the light of the new heavens and new earth is going to be Christ himself. I love how Genesis 2 and Revelation 22 collide together, beginning and the end. Old creation, new creation. And it's all because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Adam was supposed to move out from the garden. And the last Adam is the one who brings about paradise for his people. Dwelling with God. Dwelling with him forever and ever. It's important for us to recognize the connection between these covenants. That we might see the beauties of Christ. The glories of Christ. That we might see what happens if you remain in Adam. That we might see the reality. Even what we face now. We still face the reality of death because of Because of Adam, we still have the remnants of the old man that we are still trying to kill. We already put it off in Jesus Christ. Uh, We still shall die. But the beauty is, though we die, we are already, brethren. The promise is already. We are already part of that new heavens and new earth, that eschatological life, the new life now. We are in the new man now, which is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. And we shall enjoy God forever, dwelling with him Forever, dwelling with God and Christ in that new heavens and new earth. And really, too, this covenant of works with covenant of grace gives us the framework for viewing the world. You're either in Adam or you're in Jesus Christ. That's it. If you die in Adam, those who die outside of Christ and in the first Adam shall be outside that city, outside the celestial place, outside the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and new earth. But those who are in Christ shall be with Christ in that city, dwelling with him forever, dwelling with our loved ones forever and ever. And those who die in Christ shall be in paradise forever and ever. So there's two ways of, sal- two ways of salvation. Not really, though. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. There's either your own works righteousness, which you've already failed, or there's a Christ who earned the way. If you're an unbeliever here today, you're in Adam. And you need to believe on Jesus Christ and look to him for eternal life. For he is the one who earned the way. He is the one who died in the stead of his people. He is the one who was raised and the one who's bringing in the new heavens and new earth that the first Adam failed to do. Praise be to God for his blessed eternal plan.
but the last Adam should come and live and die and rise again. Well, let's pray. Our God, we are thankful for the structure of Scripture we see in your word, and we are thankful for a proper understanding in place of covenants and the place of the covenant of works. We know, God, that Adam failed and we fail with him as well. We're thankful that the last Adam did not fail. We're thankful, O God, for eternal life through faith and not works. We pray, O God, we'd have a proper and right understanding of the categories that we do not mix works with salvation, works and justification, or justification and sanctification. Help us to remember their proper place and proper understanding. We know, O God, that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, but faith is never alone. We know that works are an evidence, not a contributing factor to our salvation and final justification. And we are thankful, O God, for this last Adam, the one who completed and fulfilled the covenant of works, dying for a people like us, living for a people like us. And we are thankful for his active and passive obedience. And we're thankful, O God, that he lived the perfect life and dies as that perfect sacrifice. We're thankful, O God, we can come to you now this evening and consider and have these visible representations of the Lord's Supper. May you bless it to our our souls. May you encourage us and nourish us along the way. Pray that you be pleased to save sinners this day and strengthen your saints, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.